if there were a real Italian in the room, it would be Borsi. As, as in spelt as though it's B A W S E Y. Okay, so what, because what would an you Italian. Like me to try? <laughs> no, 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 just say Bozy. Just All say right. Bozy. That's how everybody calls me. That's what I call myself, unless I'm trying to uh, be troublesome. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we chat to a different scientist and go behind the scenes of scientific discovery. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and in this episode, I'm chatting with medical physicist, polymath, and science educator, Dr. Stephen Posey. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Polymath? I mean... <laughs> am, am I wrong to suggest well, that? I, well, you, you know, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> Good. Well, I mean, research-wise, you work on all sorts of different things, but I, I get the impression that you're also an incredibly creative person and doing lots of outreach and education and all sorts of stuff. Well, working, working on a whole bunch of things is partly because I do like working on, you know, I do, I do like doing interdisciplinary type research, but mm. it's also partly because that's the life of, of most... Um, uh, you know, most research scientists who, mm. who, for most of their career, are on what we call funny money. You know, just uh, <laughs> yeah. and and so you you, you have to move around uh, if you want to actually have a job. Yeah. So that's part of it. But as I say, I've always had a, a uh, I've always had a desire to to be multidisciplinary. I mean, my undergraduate degree, I actually did a double major in physics and chemistry, mm-hmm. which you know, arguably, are the two closest disciplines that there are mm-hmm. and yet most people see that as strange you're either one or the other yeah know, yeah they, they can't a chemist yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so i did both i, I did my honors in chemistry uh, and i did my phd in physics mm-hmm. however i sometimes joke that i did more physics in my chemistry honors than i did in my phd in physics because my chemistry honors mm-hmm. was a quantum chemistry project i did quantum mechanical calculations of uh, the molecular properties of small organic molecules okay so sounds very physics yeah and in in physics i worked on superconductivity i spent much of my time with a mortar and pestle grinding oxides and and <laughs> baking ceramics in a, in a furnace mm. to make superconductors so so are you at the interface of these fields or is there simply yeah, oh, de- a yes i've definitely i've definitely um straddled that interface for for much of my career mm-hmm. including my my current research mm-hmm. uh where would, you, where would you like me to start i mean i can, <laughs> I, can I can start at the beginning and, and w- work to the present or... well look so usually whenever i do these podcasts i spend a little while stalking my guest online finding out as much as i can oh, about okay, them okay all I could find about you was Stephen's Lamb website <laughs> from about 2005. <laughs> yeah, that was from when I was working at another university, yes. Yes. So what I've gleaned from that is that you like funny pictures, you enjoy basic HTML, and you're some sort of physicist. Well, it's basic HTML because it's a very <laughs> old website. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but actually, you know, to be honest... Um, you know, basic HTML, at least you know it'll work on every device on the planet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's still a very good functional website. <laughs> but that was a long time ago. Now yeah. you're here. And basically, you I, I set that up because uh, before we had proper online um, distribution of lecture notes and stuff mm. like that, I started doing it myself. Yeah. And then eventually, 
when when they got uh, you know a commercial product for 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 posting online lessons, then I, I, it, I the, you know the, the website just became inactive. <laughs> no, it's just a, a historical archive of. Well, uh, you know, gone by. as as it says in the the caveat on that uh, on that <laughs> website, it says that I've left it there in, it, to allow for the possibility that people looking for uh, for online humour might stumble across it. <laughs> but of course, I you know I, I do not guarantee guarantee the the quality of the of the humour therein. <laughs> So you were at uh, Sydney Uni for a while, and you've been on Funny Money for a while. Yeah. Oh, no, no, but since I got here, I've, I've, I've been on permanent money. How long so. have you been here at UNE? Five years. A right. little, little under five years. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, talking of this sort of Funny Money system, do you sort of feel like a sort of a gun for hire as a scientist? If something needs done, you'll do it, and you'll figure out how? Uh, up, up to a point, but there are so many guns out there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in a sense... Um, Science is becoming almost, you know, research science is becoming almost as as unsteady a career path as as being an artist or a musician. It's really it's really getting getting like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I started viewing myself essentially as a freelance scientist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. After a while, and it's funny because I at the end of my school education, I was very much an artsy sort of person and thought, you know what, I'm not going to be a struggling artist, I'll get a real job. Well, <laughs> I, I sort of had that, I sort of had that, that same decision because mm. I actually, uh, I, I, I'm also a painter, although I haven't right. painted for a while, but, um, but I got my highest mark in the HSC for three unit art. All right, I was music for my Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and and, and I, 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 basically what I was I had to make the decision, am I going to be a visual artist or am I going to be a scientist? Mm-hmm. And I liked both. And I figured that it was more likely that I could be a professional scientist and an amateur painter than the other way around. <laughs> so um, I get the feeling that across science, almost everyone is a, a closet creative. And some of them not even closet, very overtly. Why do you think... That is. What is well, it about this, science and art? Yes, yes, I agree. And, and this is, this is a, a point that I try to make wherever I can. Mm. We have a bit of a tendency, not we as in scientists, but, mm-hmm. but, but society more, more broadly, to, to treat art, literature, you know, visual art, literature and music as the creatives, and, and they'll often use that word to mm-hmm. describe them, and then the scientists as the technical. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you having done science yourself, you know that you need to be creative yeah. to create new science. <laughs> the, the problem is we teach science badly, particularly at school. Mm-hmm. We, we present students with a bunch of facts they have to memorise, and we don't really give them a feel for how many ridiculous how many your ridiculous ideas eventually became mm. the truth, you know, became considered the truth, <laughs> and how it takes at least as much creativity to think of some of the weird ideas in quantum mechanics or in cosmology mm. as it does to think of weird ideas in literature or, or the visual arts or, uh, or in music. So you mean, do you have to then be a practising scientist to experience that creative side? Do you actually have to be out there? Well, to, get to, exp- to, to, to experience the feeling of it, no. Mm. But obviously, if, if you want to make a a memorable contribution to science. If, if you're not a professional scientist, you don't have a lot of avenues to do that. Mm-hmm. That said, um, the 
the web has made possible much more than ever before the the concept of uh, citizen science. Mm. So there are a lot of there's a lot of projects out there where amateurs can actually make meaningful mm. contributions to the advancement of science. You know, in astronomy, for example, there are a lot of amateur astronomers mm-hmm. uh, discover things like comets because professional astronomers neither have the time nor particularly the interest <laughs> in discovering new comets because you, you don't have time to sit there hours on end at night just peering into a telescope. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a professional astronomer, you've just got way too much to do. Okay, so that's something a hobbyist astronomer could do with yeah, a yeah, and, and, consumer and telescope. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so you have somebody who just likes, you know, looking through a telescope for hours. Mm. They've got more opportunity for, for straightforward things like just discovering a new comet. Mm. Or, uh, well, either more opportunity or at, least, or at least a significant opportunity. And then when you multiply that by the number of amateur astronomers out there, then it becomes mm. a significant force. And so you have these pro-am collaborations where you'll have a professional astronomer or same thing's happening in, in uh, zoology. You know, mm-hmm. you'll have people counting birds and, and stuff like that. So you'll have a pro-am collaboration where you have, uh, you know, amateur, amateur uh, astronomers mm-hmm. d- dealing directly with a professional astronomer mm-hmm. and the professional astronomer is, is collating data and, and, you know, giving them ideas on, you know, the best way to do things and so on. Mm. Um, and, and that's become more possible because of the web. You know, now we are so interconnected mm. that um, you know, we, we, now it, it is possible to make a meaningful contribution as an amateur. And another example is the, um, the SETI at home type thing where you're, they're using your processing power of your computer. Yeah, when it's, that's right. Yeah, monitor all the data they're coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're not doing anything and it's mm. just sitting there making a screensaver run, <laughs> uh, it's an exciting time for science. Not only because the rate of discovery is, has just been enormous. I, mm-hmm. I, I compare with the, 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 the rate of discovery com- when I was a kid. It's just it's blind, blindingly fast now. Mm-hmm. But also because of the interconnectivity of uh, of people via the the web. So, do you think? That sort of the desire to discover and the desire to create are, are filling this same need to explore concepts. Yeah, oh yes, yes for sure. And mm. and if you go back to say the, the the Renaissance in Europe, they were it was more or less the same practitioners mm. either doing both mm-hmm. or being so close to each other. Mm. You know, you people like your Leonardo da Vinci. Who was clearly doing both? Yeah. Uh, but then, then you've got uh, you know the 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 the, the, one, the people who you might think of as as the pure artists, like your your um, Michelangelo and so on. But mm-hmm. but the kind of mathematics that they had to use for their perspective, for their mm-hmm. um, you know, you know for, for, for for their proportions and so on and so forth. Yeah. So they would have had to have been mathematically literate. Yeah. To do that, so. Well, yeah, I mean, anatomy is the perfect example of that. Yes, to be yes. a yeah. really good painter or sketch artist or whatever, you yeah. have to study anatomy. Well, I mean, these days you don't have to, but I reckon <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would help. <laughs> um, now, uh, often people will ask about, okay, can art, will there be, will artists and scientists returning to those, that golden era and collaborating produce better science and better art? Mm-hmm. That's another matter. I'm not, I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure. It would uh, be an administrative nightmare for a university. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, even, 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 even if, if, it's, if it's informal so that you can ignore the at, at a cultural level, can a practicing scientist be a practicing artist these days? Is that what you're getting at? Or Oh, oh no, that's another matter. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, look, in principle, mm. uh, there's no reason why a practicing scientist couldn't also be a practicing artist. Mm-hmm. The problem is um, uh, this, nobody's figured out how to increase the number of hours in a day. That's, <laughs> if, if, uh, th- uh, that's the limitation because mm-hmm. um, to be really good at anything, mm. you need to spend a lot of time at it. So I know a lot of scientists who will do on the side, be in an orchestra or mm. paint like me or draw or, or, or write literature or poems or whatever. Um, but to be really great at something, you just basically have to spend all your time on it, yeah. no matter what it is. Mm. Um, so, so there's no reason why it's not possible, but there's a practi- I think there's a practical We need limitation. more part-time scientists. Well, you know, an example, an example of somebody who did me- is is you remember the um, uh, the the guitarist from Queen was it Brian May? Brian May, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and a, so I forgot what field he's in. He does a an astrophysics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what he did was that a few years ago, I think now, four or five years ago, roughly, hmm. he went. He decided to finish the PhD that he'd started. <laughs> that got interrupted by the success of, of Queen. Mm. And it turned out he was, he was studying a thing called the zodiacal light, mm-hmm. which is, which is the, the light that surrounds the, the band within which is contained the, the signs mm. of the zodiac. So, and uh, he discovered that, that after several decades that nobody had made any progress. So he just picked up where he left off and <laughs> finished his PhD. So. Actually, I think the guitarist from Incubus is doing his PhD in physics. Oh, okay. At the moment. Okay. <laughs> and, of, like and of course, there's Brian Cox as well. Yes, of yeah. course. <laughs> so look, so it is, it is possible to, 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 to be, you know, have a meaningful career in an, in a science and an, and an art at the same time. Mm-hmm. It'd be really, really great. You'd have to be a damn genius to be able to do that so in 24 hours a day. There's still a chance for me to be a rock star. Oh, yeah, there's still saying. a chance. Still a chance. <laughs> so can I ask what your painting medium is? Oh, it, it's, it, it's either, either oils or, or acrylics is mm-hmm. what I've worked with. But, but most of the time, because it's simply because it's quicker, I, I mostly draw. Mm-hmm. So I'll draw in pencil or, or actually just biro to be honest yeah, yeah. good old biro <laughs> we should actually get onto your your science stuff. oh, oh, oh that <laughs> I guess. Thing. yeah so, so i guess what are you working on at the moment okay the my main project is a medical physics project mm. now first a bit of background before i tell you what i'm doing yeah now, um i i spent about five Five odd, five six years before oh, before I came here, about about five six years working on um, radio onco- uh, radiation oncology, medical physics. Mm-hmm. Now, radiation oncology, medical physics is using high energy X rays. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually in, in Australia, at any rate, it's always high energy X rays uh, to treat cancer or other conditions. Yeah. Uh, another thing that medical physicists do is to use radiation to visualize tissues and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you like, medical physics is using radiation to, de- to detect 
and treat cancer and other conditions. Yeah. So, and so something like an x-ray would be an example of using radiation to visualise yeah, yeah, tissues. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not doing the actual treating no, no, no. people. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> now, well, as a, as a radiation oncologist, a radio-oncology medical physicist. Mm-hmm. Now, I was a research mm-hmm. uh, medical physicist, so I didn't actually come anywhere near patients. Yeah. Okay. But my colleagues, I was working in a hospital, in, in Prince of Wales Hospital, for four years. So my colleagues who were actual clinical medical physicists, mm-hmm. um, their job was not to deliver the radiation to the, to the patients. That was the jobs of the radiation therapists. Okay. So the... But the medical physicists had to make sure that the the radiation that was being delivered to the patients mm-hmm. was in the right dose in the right places. Okay, so so they were constantly checking that the linear accelerators, which are you know like super duper X ray machines, mm-hmm. uh, producing very very high energy X ray photons, uh, that it was the medical physicist's job to make sure that they would deliver beams of the right dose but the right shape as well, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now the background to my current research. The way that external beam radiation therapy works is this. Now, radio, uh, uh, ionizing radiation, and I'm, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> just, for, just for, most people think that the word radiation means the nasty stuff, okay? Sound is a form of radiation too, yeah. you know? Your, your, <laughs> your torch is a source of radiation, your... your Glow bar heater yeah. is a source it's of not infrared all nuclear radiation. power plants yeah. and that but stuff. But the, the stuff that most people think of mm-hmm. as the dangerous radiation, it, technically we call that ionizing radiation. Okay. It's because it's got enough energy to ionize atoms, to knock electrons off atoms. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, all cells, all living cells, are susceptible to damage by ionizing radiation. Mm-hmm. However, luckily, cancer cells are more susceptible. Right. to damage by ionising radiation. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is that the, the time when a cell is most vulnerable to damage by radiation is when the cell is dividing. Because when the cell is dividing, all the DNA, which is usually all tightly coiled up in the nucleus, mm-hmm. has to unravel so that the genes can be duplicated and then the two duplicates can be split off and sent into the, the two split cells. Yeah. So when it's unraveled, any damage to the DNA is hard to repair. Okay? Mm-hmm. So along comes ionizing radiation, hits a water molecule, creates a thing called a, a, um, a free radical, and that free radical can damage the DNA strand. Mm-hmm. Now, if it damages a single strand, there are special enzymes in the cell that repair the damage. They just take the two ends and stick them back together. Mm-hmm. But if you damage the... The, both strands of the DNA, I'm, I'm hoping everybody out there has heard of the double helix and how DNA molecule is like a ladder with two rungs, yep. uh, with, sorry, with, with two, two parts with rungs between them. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if you break the two legs of that DNA ladder, mm-hmm. now the two ends come away and Getting you don't know which end... Again. Yeah, to get them, difficult, yeah. it's difficult because you don't know which which leg of of the DNA goes back to you know mm-hmm. it's 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 much more difficult to to stick them back together. So normally, what happens is when you get a double strand breakage, there's a mechanism inside the cell mm-hmm. that detects the damage, and then says, "Uh-uh, 
uh, it's self-destruct time. This cell is irreparably damaged. I'm, we're just going to destroy the cell. And it triggers a process called apoptosis. Mm. So apoptosis is a is a is a uh, a mechanism within the cell, and it's it's evolved that way. It's not just the cell has failed. Mm-hmm. It's evolved that it will destroy the cell when it gets this kind of damage. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the thing about cancer cells is these are cells that are dividing out of control. They're just dividing continuously, and that's how cancer grows. Whereas mm-hmm. normal cells, most of the time, are not dividing. Mm. So if you get a big dose of radiation, the cancer cells they're dividing, then more of those cells are going to get damaged by the radiation. Right. So and that's then, what's making them more vulnerable is yeah. simply yeah. the rate at which they're yeah. replicating. The idea is you blast the radiation, you know, you have a, a beam, of, a focused beam of radiation on the on the tumour, mm-hmm. and the the tumour cells are more likely, uh, are going to die, but the surrounding normal cells are less likely to die. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to... Now, the, the ratio between the dose that will kill, that will kill the, um, uh, the cancer cells to not killing the, the normal cells is called the therapeutic ratio. Mm-hmm. And the, the trick is to give a dose within that therapeutic ratio mm-hmm. so that you kill all the cancer cells but without d- damaging too many normal cells. Yep. Now... So the first thing is you get the dose right. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is you have to shape the beam, okay? All right. So this what, is where I'm going to get lost. Uh, no, 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 going no. straight lines yeah, in yeah, my Yeah, that's head. right. But what you, do is, what you do is you have um, a, a thing called a multi-leaf collimator. So mm-hmm. imagine that in front, of, in front of your beam, you've got a bunch of shutters. Mm-hmm. Think of the shutters as being like... Um, just imagine you're holding your, your two hands flat in front of your face, mm-hmm. and you can see that the fingers hold them so that your fingers are up, up you know, horizontal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the multi-leaf collimator is like two shutters that are made up of these fingers of tungsten, mm-hmm. and each individual finger of tungsten can be pulled in and out. All right, uh, right. So what you can do by by adjusting the positions of these fingers of tungsten, you can create an aperture that is the shape of the outline of the tumour from that particular direction. Okay. So what will happen is you will do some medical imaging mm-hmm. using um, a CT scanner and, and often another medical imaging technique like magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. So mm-hmm. it's CT and also MRI. And from that, you determine the three-dimensional shape of the tumour. Mm-hmm. Now, what you're going to do f- is you're going to be irradiating the patient with, you know, four or five beams from different directions. Mm-hmm. And the idea is they're all, because they're coming from different directions, the out- outer parts of your body get um, a minimal dose, but all of those f- four or five beams will converge on a particular focal point. Mm-hmm. So that's going to get the full dose from all five beams. But then what you do is you know what the 3D shape of the tumour is. Mm-hmm. So then that multi-leaf collimator, those fingers of tungsten, you can pull them in and out mm. to form an aperture that is the shape for, for say, beam one, mm. for the shape of the, out, the, the outline shape of that tumour for beam one. Mm. And then you do the same thing for beam two and beam three and beam four and so on. Yeah. So now you're, you're, you're focusing on a volume that has a particular shape. Moreover, 
you can you can go one step further and by doing multiple shots for each beam mm. but changing the shape of that aperture you can make it so that the inner, the inner part of the region you're focusing gets the biggest dose mm-hmm. And towards the edges where you're now approaching the normal tissue, you, you can also um, sh- you, you can make that you can minimise that dose as well. So you can actually not only shape the outline of the beam, but you can actually have the beam. So within the beam, you can have regions that are higher dose than others. Okay. okay? So you can modulate the dose as well as the shape of the beam. Okay. And what sort of size? Tumors are we talking about here? If we're picturing these shutters, oh well, uh, okay. I mean, we, they... we 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 we're talking about things that are you know more than a few you know millimeters or more mm-hmm. in size. Yeah. All right. So so the medical physicist's job is to make sure that all those those leaves in the multi-leaf collimator are mm-hmm. all moving as as required to, so that it will properly shape the beam. Mm-hmm. Make sure that the the amount of the actual dose of radiation given off by the linear accelerator. Is correct, mm-hmm. you know, within within you know, a couple of a couple of percent, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and so that when when the patient's actually there and, and the radiation therapists start pressing the go button, mm-hmm. that each beam is going to pr- deliver a, a map of you know the map of the 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 radiation dose, the three dimensional yeah. map of the radiation dose mm-hmm. is as the oncologist. The medical specialist who prescribed, you know, who prescribed the dose mm. that that it, it agrees with the prescription. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's the background. That's the background. Okay. Go. Well, that, that's that's background part part one. <laughs> okay. the, the next bit is how how if it is now the the thing is how much a dose is delivered to the body. It's not just a matter of knowing how much dose there is in the beam. Mm. Once that beam enters the human body. It's going to interact with with the the, the atoms in your body. So that's some, going to be my next question. Some's going to absorb. Go? Yeah. That's it. It's going to absorb some of it. It's going to scatter some of it. So, so that that beam's going to become smeared out mm-hmm. by its interaction with the the human tissue. Mm-hmm. So you need to when you're calculating what the dose map is, you have to you, you you use a very very complicated computer programs that calculate the way that the that the radiation spreads throughout the body, mm-hmm. okay? Because it's, it's travelling straight lines before it hits you, and then once it hits you, then it gets fuzzed out. Yeah. Okay. So in order to do that calculation, you need to know where all the electrons are. Because by and large, how much absorption or scattering can be related to the, the electron density, okay? Because mm-hmm. essentially it's the electrons that interact... With the photons, mm-hmm. so if you want to, if you want to do a complicated calculation of where the dose goes, you need to know where the electrons are. As and in all of those electrons that make up tissue, that make up the atom that are in the atoms that make up the tissue. Yeah. that's right. So, and, and so, what will happen is, you know, uh, soft tissues will tend to have a low electron density, and mm-hmm. things like bone will tend to have a high electron density. So, how do you how do you know where they are? Well, the, well, what you do is you rely on the fact that. When you give somebody a CT scan, mm-hmm. um, essentially the, 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 they're X-ray photons as well, and they're also scattered or absorbed due to, uh, b- b- by the atoms. But but how much is absorbed or scattered depends on the electrons in the atom. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when I have a CT image, mm-hmm. the bits that look dark 
if you like, mm-hmm. are the bits where the the X-ray photons are getting the most um, attenuated. So because the most of the, you know, okay, so that's the bits where the where the electron density is high. You get yep. the most attenuation of the X-ray photons. Mm-hmm. So you give somebody a CT, and that gives you a three D image of where the electrons are. Mm-hmm. So, however, the problem with um, a CT scan is that you don't get high contrast between different soft tissues. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one soft tissue m- will look very similar. On in a CT scan to another, like you look at, you do a CT of the brain, mm. and the actual brain material is essentially almost uniform. The, almost, it's, yeah. it's it's quite uniform in yeah. electron density, so it's not a, you don't really get a lot of the detail about where all the, the tiny little you know particular nerves are or blood vessels or whatever. It's just it's not that clear. Mm. So what you might then do. Or, or if you're down in the prostate, you've got all these soft things down, you know, down in the rude bits of your body. The, 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 the CT scan isn't going to show you a lot of detail. I mean, it'll show you some detail, but mm. you get more detail about the soft tissue um, if you use an MRI scan. Okay. But the MRI scan can't tell you where the electrons are. Okay. Okay. So in, in, when you're treating somebody and you need the high soft tissue definition but you also need the electron density so you can calculate the dose mm-hmm. you give them both imaging modalities you give them a ct and an mri mm-hmm. and then in the computer program you take the two images and you fuse them together mm-hmm. and 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 they're never ex- quite exactly the same so you have to do a little bit of fiddling with the image stretching it and moving and rotating mm-hmm. it to fuse the two images together and there's a source of error there mm-hmm. But it means it's more work, and it also means you have to, they have to get two separate imaging modalities. It means more waiting around for the patient in the waiting room. It costs more money, whatever. Yeah. It would be so much nicer if you could just give somebody, say, an MRI scan, which gives you the beautiful soft tissue definition, mm-hmm. and if you could come up with a way of it telling you where the electrons are. The problem is mm-hmm. MRI tells you where the nuclei are, but not where the oh. electrons are. So my project is. And, and th- now, there's a lot of people interested in, in developing ways to do that. And, and, and you know, there's uh, several different approaches. But mm. the, the approach that, that uh, we're taking, I'm collaborating with collaborators at Western Sydney University. And the, the approach we're taking is, now, remember how I said I was a, did double major in chemistry and physics? Yes. So I still think like a chemist. Good. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the most of the people working on this problem are medical physicists, so they think like physicists. Mm-hmm. So my approach is, let's think like chemists for a, for a minute. MRI is based on, uh, is an imaging version of something called NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, mm. which, although the original thing was discovered by physicists, it's actually used mostly by chemists for analysing chemical composition. Mm-hmm. So, I, so what I'm saying is, let's think like chemists, and let's use our MRI machine and set it up to do scans that are sensitive to chemical composition. Mm-hmm. And once you know what chem- what chemicals are there, you know, which which atom types are there, mm-hmm. then you just calculate how many electrons, where the electrons are and how many there are. Okay? So that's that's the research. I think I get it. Oh, good, <laughs> good. Okay. okay. Good. So the the this... background was longer than the actual description of my research. But... No, it's perfect. I mean, is this something... That is done on, a, on an individual level. So an individual patient is scanned yes. and you use that individual yeah. scan yeah. to then 
uh, regulate their treatment. <laughs> well, you use, well, you, if, what, if, use that scan to, one, work out where all the boundaries of the tissues are, mm-hmm. because somebody's got to draw the, the oncologist or maybe a senior radiation therapist has to draw contours around, one around the tumour, on a computer screen, they're basically mm. with with a mouse. They'll draw contours around the tumor, so that's the bit you want to get the high dose. Yep. But also draw contours around the tissues at risk, things like okay. optic nerves. You don't want to radiate the optic nerves; you go blind. Mm. Okay, so you 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 will you will or, or the spinal cord. You don't want to radiate spinal cord. Mm-hmm. So so you contour those, and because they're soft tissues, um, you'll get a better result. If you use the MRI scan, okay, because it's it gives you really nice clear boundaries between the soft tissues, mm. but you still have to do the CT to get the electron density map. So, in saying that you're researching this, does that mean it's not being used widely? Well, yet? there are other people who are have come up with different ways of doing. It. And in fact, in the news a couple of weeks ago, mm. there, there was even announced that uh, one of my colleagues up at Newcastle um, is, is is achieved. You know, a level of, you know, gold standard level using a, a, a different approach. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the more, the, the more traditional, well, it's, it's very new stuff, so to call it traditional. <laughs> but, but the other approach, which yeah. doesn't involve thinking like a chemist, um, a, an example would be where you might get the, da- the images of 60 patients mm-hmm. and take the average of them and create a thing called a, an atlas. You get an atlas of a person. An atlas of an average person yeah. saying, you know, that's liver, you know, that's intestine, that's mm-hmm. lung, that, whatever. And then when you take the MRI of your new patient, you take that image and you get the computer program to distort the atlas image mm-hmm. so that it fits the new patient. And, be, and so because the atlas in the atlas you've identified what all the tissues are, that's a bone, you know, that's a liver, mm-hmm. then... You simply have a lookup table that says, uh, you know, this is the electron density for this tissue. This is the electron density for this tissue. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of like the, the more usual approach to achieving this aim. Mm-hmm. Okay, of, um, and you know, and it's and it's 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 working. It's mm-hmm. working, and and it's a matter now of of um, convincing the you know the medical fraternity that it's now. At least, at least as good as the the traditional approach with CT scans and mm. using a CT scan as well as an MRI. Okay, yeah. Because you, you can't just start treating patients with something until you've got trials that say it works. Mm. Okay, so that's the that's the next step. Okay. But in our case, what, but the problem with that, that approach, from our point of view, is um, you're not relying on patient specific data. You're relying on data from an average of you know 100 patients, 60 patients, or whatever, mm. right? The ideal is data that is specific to your patient. Mm. And so that's why we'd like to do it our way, which is identify, oh, that's a lipid, you know, that, that's, that's, that's fat tissue, mm. that's bone tissue, and therefore the electron density is, and you just calculate what it is because you've got, you've got, you've looked up how many hydrogen, you know, you, you know how many hydrogen atoms, how many carbon atoms, how many oxygen atoms, yeah. and it's a simple year 11, um, chemistry calculation, <laughs> calculate how many electrons that is. Yeah. Right? Because you know there are as many electrons as there are protons mm-hmm. in the nuclei. E- easy calculation. Um, so so uh, we'd like to do it that way because 
uh, then you're relying on patient-specific data rather than kind of an average of 60 patients. Yeah. But there's another reason why we like to do it this way is because once that's working, if you can identify tissues using the MRI... And rather than just a lookup table that says, yeah, that's liver, whatever, but you actually can, can identify the chemical composition. It also means it's a possibility of, um, uh, the possibility of using it for diagnosis. You might find signatures that say, yeah, that's a liver, but that's a disease liver, or, you know, that's, okay, yeah. you know, currently, you know, you, you'll get the, you'll, you'll get the, the, um, you know, radiologist or whatever, or, or, or an oncologist or whatever, and look at things and 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 and, and based on the image, diagnose things. Mm. Sure, but if if on top of that you also have, oh by the way, there's a, an excess of such and such a, such and such a chemical in this tissue that might be a, um, an additional way of of, of diagnosing. This is sounding very Star Trekian, where you just get a scan and it tells us what's wrong with this. Yeah, yeah. That, that, well, that's yeah, that, and that yeah, this may be a step in that direction. Mm. Yeah. So you've got once we've got our our electron map, yeah, or whatever we want to call it. That's a good. Yeah, that's what I call it. A map. <laughs> even even look even even in uh, even in the grant applications, I call it an electron density map. So yeah, right. you're, you're entitled okay. to say that. So we've got that. We can do our year eleven calculations about where electrons are. Is yeah. it then? Uh, is it a simulation as to how we think this radiation is going to scatter? Well, then what or... you do is what you do is you now have now that you've got that electron density map, you just slot it into in in the in the um, computer program which we call a treatment planning system. Mm-hmm. Normally, you would slot the CT scan data into mm-hmm. that, and then there's a there's a special a plot. There's a graph of now the CT. If you look at a CT scan, you see the bright dots and you know bright pixels and dark pixels, mm-hmm. and how bright they are is called the CT number. Mm-hmm. So, and there are there are there are graphs that 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 plot. There's a plot of CT number versus electron density, mm-hmm. and that's fed into that's fed into the um, the treatment planning system. So, all we would do now is we've done our calculation with electron densities, and now you would just slot that in that, those data into the input of the treatment planning system where in the past you would have slotted in the the CT scan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So... Oh, and you asked, is it a simulation? Okay, well, um, in the past... Now, there is a thing called a Monte Carlo simulation. You, you may have even heard of that. Mm-hmm. The Monte Carlo simulation is... is uh, the, the concept's been around for a long time. It's been around for, you know, since the days of the... Um, Manhattan Project, where they produced the first <laughs> atomic bomb, mm-hmm. and it's called the Monte Carlo. Uh, it's called the Monte Carlo uh, simulation because um, things that are on, at the level of, of, of individual particles and atoms and molecules, because they're obeying quantum mechanics, they, they more or less behave randomly. Mm-hmm. But quantum mechanics tells you what the probability of particular outcomes are. So what you do in a Monte Carlo simulation is you essentially just Throw throw a couple of dice, where, but well, it's a it's a random number generator yeah. in a computer program. <laughs> but but you know, metaphorically, you're chucking a couple of dice. Mm-hmm. Each time there's an interaction, you know, like a, along comes one of these X-ray photons and it mm-hmm. meets an atom in your in your tissues. In a Monte Carlo simulation, 
you would you would you would know what the probability of the outcome is. But then you, you like like in a game of Dungeons and Dragons, you, you know, throw in some your sixteen sided sixteen yeah. sided die or whatever. You, you, you have your random number generator and it decides whether it reflects off or it's absorbed, it's scattered, <laughs> whatever, right? So that's called a Monte Carlo simulation. It's called Monte Carlo because Monte Carlo was is where, where the, the famous uh, um, casino is. <laughs> so it's like a roulette wheel or, or a yeah. dice. That's why it's called Monte Carlo simulation. Okay. However, up until recently, computer power hasn't been enough so that you could do a proper Monte Carlo simulation. Mm. Okay. So in the past, people used sort of cut down, cut down versions of the algorithms to work out where the um, uh, where, where the dose goes. Mm. Okay. Nowadays, we're, we're moving more and more towards, because the com- computers are so much more powerful now, moving more and more towards basing the simulations on these Monte Carlo simulations, mm. where you're essentially one, one photon at a time. You imagine you, you, in the computer, you've got a, a, a model of where all the electrons are, mm-hmm. and then you fire uh, a photon into this sea of electrons, and you're in the computer, you're saying, oh, it's coming up to an electron. Okay, throw the dice. Does it does it scatter off it, or does it go past it? Does it get absorbed through photoelectric absorption, right? And then you do that, and you just do that for millions and millions and millions of photons. Mm-hmm. So that's we're moving more and more towards that. So is this where you dabble in quantum physics? Then? Well, I mean, I, I in my case, I, I this stage I don't have terribly much to do with that simulation mm-hmm. bit, uh, but where the quantum physics. Where the quantum physics fits into to what to, to this project, it, MRI magnetic resonance imaging. It's 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 it, it is an, an avowedly quantum process. Mm-hmm. There's there's no class. Or it, or people try to come up with classical pictures to explain it to to people that, but really it's a quantum process. The way in which s- spinning nuclei mm-hmm. absorb and emit radio frequency photons is very very quantum okay so that's where the quantum comes in there but certainly there's a lot of quantum there'll be quantum in the in the uh, the monte carlo simulations as well mm. but the quantum there is just in pre-calculating what these probabilities are of scattering versus absorption etc that's that's where that's built in that's mm. al- they're already calculated uh, and or measured, okay, so there'll be some measurements and some calculations, mm. and they're built into the, the program. And in the end, the actual simulation itself is not terribly quantum because you're just treating these particles as, as, as being little, you know, uh, cannonballs. Mm. And, and the quantum, if you like, is in the throwing the dice bit. So I, I bring it up because you did a talk here in oh, recently okay. yeah, on a, yeah, yeah. an evening in the pub, or well, Science in the Club, yeah, it's organised yeah. by the New England Regional Science Hub, and it it was great. It was one of the only scientific talks I've been to where there was hecklers. It <laughs> <laughs> was a fun night. Not mentioning any names, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as a as a non physicist, what separates quantum physics from classical physics is it the fact that you know classical physics should play by particular rules, and quantum physics there is this. Well, quantum Hello physics plays by rule, definitely plays by rules. Mm-hmm. The the big difference is this: in classical physics, there's there's this concept called determinism, mm-hmm. which means that if I throw a ball in the air, if I know what its initial velocity is and what initial angle it is and what the gravitational acceleration is, mm. 
I can calculate with arbitrary precision what the traje- trajectory of that ball will be. In mm. other words, the path that it follows. I can calculate that to, to you know, uh, whatever precision that the original data allows me to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's called determinism because the, the future of that ball is completely determined by the initial conditions. Yeah. Now, in quantum mechanics, the thing that we calculate is not the trajectory, at least not initially, it's a thing called the wave function. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's the way that the wave wiggles. And that, the equation for that is called Schrodinger's wave equation. And that is deterministic in the sense that if you know what the, the initial state of the wave, w- w- sorry, I won't use the word state because it has a particular meaning, but if you know what the, <laughs> what the wave function looked like at time zero, yeah. then in principle, Schrodinger's wave equation says that it will evolve, the shape of that will evolve in a, deterministic way Mm -hmm. the problem is we can't see the wave function we Mm -hmm. can't observe the wave function when we make observations what we do is we force the 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 act of the act of measuring forces this wobbly wave function to move into a particular state that is observable so you'll have as again as a non-physicist wave function is like a way of saying it the, the probability of yeah, well, yeah, the wave function is related to the probability of a particle being in a particular place. Yep. Now, if you think of sound waves, mm-hmm. you know, just imagine a sound wave traveling through a trumpet or something, or, or, or along, you know, a vibrating string on a guitar, and you can actually see the wave as it bounces yep. back and forth, right? Now, in a, in a sound wave, where the amplitude of the wave is high, that the, means the sound is loud. Yeah. In quantum mechanics, our little wave function, where the amplitude of the wave is high, that means the probability of finding the particle there is high. Mm-hmm. Okay, And that concept of the, the amplitude of this wave function being related to probability was, was actually first postulated by a fellow called Max Born, mm-hmm. who, for the viewers at home, <laughs> was the grandfather of Olivia Newton-John of <laughs> you're the one that I want Greece fame, right? Okay, So that's, that's Australia's... You know, link to indirectly, oh, there's more than that. You know, there, there are some real are physicists, many links. To, <laughs> but that, that's probably the probably the most um, uh, identifiable link by the, by the average non-physicist. <laughs> okay, um, okay. So, so, so the, the so as, just to get back to what the difference is mm-hmm. when now, I don't. Some of some of the viewers may have seen pictures of what we call orbitals in atoms. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a nucleus, and rather than like a hula hoop orbit around the nucleus, which is the 1920s picture of the atom, mm-hmm. and don't ever draw atoms like that. It's wrong. <laughs> um, uh, what you will see is a fuzzy cloud around the nucleus. So we call that an electron cloud. That's mm-hmm. that fuzzy cloud is the wave function. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Schrödinger's wave equation tells you how that that evolves in time, the shape of that cloud, how it evolves in time. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that is, in a mathematical sense, deterministic. The way that the cloud evolves in time is deterministic, mm-hmm. but we can't see the cloud directly. What we do is, we go and shine. Say we want to know where the electron is, mm-hmm. we'll shine a f- light at that electron cloud, and then a photon comes along 
and collides with that electron and then the photon bounces off mm -hmm. and then you go and look at where the electron's coming from and you say, oh, that's where the atom is. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, what you've done is you've forced the electron from being in this in, in this, this state where it's spread out over a large, well, mm -hmm. not large, but over, over a, a volume and all of a sudden you force the electron into a state where it's in a definite position. But it wasn't in that position, that definite position before you observed it. Mm, so it's not that it's inaccurate because we're seeing it at a particular point in time. It's actually, it's actually interacting what, with it. What you're seeing is you're, you're, you're seeing a particular position, but before you measured it, its position was, ind was indeterminate. It was spread mm. out over the whole cloud. So whereas in the, the classic way of thinking of it is, you know, the tennis ball at time t equals 10 seconds, the mm. tennis ball has a definite position, and if I shine a light on it and look at it, well, I'm, all I'm doing is I'm just looking where it happened to be at that particular time. Mm -hmm. But in quantum mechanics, it, was, it didn't have a definite position until you measured its position. Mm. So that's the difference. So, so you're forcing, the act of observing it forces it to have a definite position. It doesn't have this trajectory, this well-determined, you know, this, this well-defined line of positions versus time. Mm. It's this fuzzy cloud, and that only... A, Comes, it adopts a definite position when you look at it, or a definite momentum, or a definite kinetic mm -hmm. energy, or whatever, depending what you're measuring. C c does that make does that make sense? That's yeah. The, that, so you you as an observer, you become a participant in the process. Whereas in classical ideal, you could, in principle, maybe not in practice, but in principle, the observer is an outsider to the process. Mm -hmm. And you observing is just taking a note of where the tennis ball happens to be. Mm -hmm. And it would have been there whether you observed it or not. Whereas in quantum mechanics, the act of observation forces it to have a particular state. Mm -hmm. So it might be a particular position or particular momentum or whatever. I feel like once we start getting into quantum physics, is it... Is this where people can get confused with science and sort of hippie nonsense about yes, yes, reality yes, yes, yes. and yes, <laughs> that's and and sadly, sadly, that's that's for me that's that's the painful bit really because that although the the re, I, I guess sometimes people make the fallacious argument that if everything that we thought was true up till now, if if, if important aspects of what everything we thought was true up till now is not true, mm -hmm. then anything goes. Hmm. And that's not that's not how physics works. <laughs> in physics, so quantum mechanics is very strict, but the rules of quantum mechanics are very very strict, and you can hmm. do very very accurate calculations. Okay, but the 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 problem the, the, it's not a problem; it's just the way life is. But but where it, where quantum mechanics differs from classical physics is yes, it's very there are very strict rules, but at best you can calculate the probability of the outcome of an experiment. Mm -hmm rather than the actual outcome. Yeah. Now, when something is as big as a tennis ball, that quantum fuzziness is irrelevant. Yeah. So you can get away with the classical view that it has a definite position at definite times and forms this nice smooth trajectory as it flies through the air. Mm -hmm. Okay. Once you get down to the atoms, the fuzziness now is as big as the object you're trying to observe. Mm. So you cannot get away with that. Okay. So the, so the, the, the hippie thing is... <laughs> Um, that I'm a part as, a, and as, a, as an observer I'm a participant in forcing the system into a state in a particular mm. position and so people start saying oh I can influence the outcome of, of uh, 
of events just you know by observing them <laughs> and yes you are but you're not directing it you're not, not telling with mind it. power or anything yeah, that's right you're not saying i want the electron to appear at this position all mm. you're doing is you're rattling a bunch of dice and it's the dice that tell you where it appears it's not your thought <laughs> process or it's not your eyeball that's determining where it ends up okay mm. so there's no this isn't mind over matter it just simply we are parts of the universe and we can't separate our role from how the universe works. I mean, up to a point you can. You can get away with it up to a point. Mm. And, 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 you know, physics worked f- for a good, you know, half a millennium mm. that way. Um, but once you get down to the level of the small things, you can't ignore your part in, 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 in mm. affecting when a, when a um, you know when when an outcome occurs. And yeah. so, in what context have you had to deal with these misguided people? Is it oh, all I, teaching I, or well? Uh, m- well, mostly, you know, th- th- because this is fascinating stuff. A lot of people are fascinated by mm-hmm. it, and you do sometimes get people who feel that they can, based on the you know th- this quantum fuzziness, that they can you know, work at how the universe works, but they don't need to learn any maths. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, as I say, quantum mechanics is very strict rules. Mm. Okay, just because the old rules don't apply, it doesn't mean that they haven't been replaced by new rules. But if you don't know the maths, you don't know the rules. Mm. So if you don't know the maths, you can speculate all you like, and everyone's entitled to speculate, and I do my own um, speculation, of course. I just try not to... If it's too, if the speculation is too embarrassing, I try not to admit it in public. <laughs> um, yeah, so you need to know the maths to know the rules, mm. and and there's, there's there's very little you can do in quantum mechanics. Well, there's nothing, frankly, there's probably nothing you can do in quantum mechanics without the maths. So the old saying that if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics uh, oh, is I, probably outdated. Well, okay. Um, Look, like like all these things, it's a nice throwaway line. Yeah. And when when you know when scientists make it, you've got to remember that they're not actually making a scientific statement. <laughs> just they're, being they're just making closet it, poets. But uh, you know they're just making a bit of a gag that will attract a bit of attention to what you're doing because that's what you want to do. You know, it's the spoonful of sugar that helps. You know that that that, that attracts attracts you know all the the. Um, all the drosophila to to the fruit, you know. <laughs> okay, you're talking in my zoology language. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, yeah. So the, the reason, okay. So that statement would have been made at a time when people really didn't know what was going on. Mm. This everything was new, everything was changing, and day to day it was changing. And so, yes, it was true. We we built up the physicists and scientists generally had built up a whole stack of of presuppositions and prejudices and 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 reflexes mm. based on classical physics and if you view the world that way and then along comes quantum mechanics then yes if you think you understand it you haven't under, understood it <laughs> is is a reasonable response mm. but like anything you know given decades or centuries of kids being taught quantum mechanics from primary school uh, mm. uh, you've heard of the book was it quantum mechanics for, for kids or something? Was it or for babies? Oh, really? <laughs> this fellow's just come out with a book called Quantum Mechanics for Babies. Oh. So if you're doing that, then by the time that you 
you're old enough to then learn the maths, then it doesn't shock you because you're already primed for it. Mm. So, so yeah, it's a fun saying, but I think it's more a saying about the state of mind. You know, uh, fifty. Sorry, um, we're talking yeah, nearly. Actually, you know, getting close to a hundred years ago. Really, a mm. uh, hundred years ago, that was true. That statement was was true mm. because nobody really understood it. And 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 a mark of that is that the two people that kicked off the quantum revolution was Max Planck and Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. And both of them were uncomfortable. Planck was uncomfortable with the way that Einstein had taken his concept of energy quanta and turned it into photons and mm-hmm. interpreted it literally and said that light was made of particles. Mm-hmm. Planck was embarrassed by that. He thought, you're a clever guy, young Einstein, and you know. <laughs> and I'll even write a letter recommending you for for membership of the um, uh, uh, of the uh, you know Academy of Science or whatever. But but I find that embarrassing. But by the same token, Albert Einstein became embarrassed by the the um, uh, by the probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. He didn't like it. He wanted physics to be deterministic, and and as I said. The way, the way the wave function evolves is deterministic, but we can never see the wave function. We can mm. only see the outcomes of experiments, mm. which is not deterministic, but probabilistic. And Einstein didn't like that. And his, his whole life he spent trying to come up with new ways of looking at quantum mechanics that were, at the base of it, deterministic. Okay, so the point is, the two people who kicked off the quantum revolution were uncomfortable with the reality of it. Were they uncomfortable simply because they didn't quite understand it yet? No, 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 no. Albert Einstein understood it perfectly. Okay. Because in trying to debunk it, he actually derived some of the, some of the most important results from <laughs> quantum mechanics. For example, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, in its original form, said that... You can't know the momentum, okay? And the momentum is basically the velocity times the mass. Mm-hmm. So you, in a sense, you can't know the velocity of a particle and its position at the same time with complete precision. Mm-hmm. You either know one more precisely than the other or vice versa, mm-hmm. okay? So if I measure the a position of an electron very accurately, I don't know what its velocity is or its momentum or its mm-hmm. energy. If I measure its energy or its velocity, or its, you know, or its velocity with perfect accuracy, I cannot know where it is. Mm. And most of the time, you're somewhere in between those two extremes. You you know its position within reasonable accuracy, and you know its its velocity with reasonable accuracy. Yeah. That's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Einstein didn't like that. Now, oh, now in classical <laughs> physics, if you want to predict the future of a particle, you need to know both its initial velocity and its initial position. And he's telling me he can't. That tennis ball, right? I'm throwing the tennis ball. I need to know where it started. I need to know what its initial velocity is Mm -hmm. in order to predict how it flies through the air. So so what Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says is that in principle, you can never know those things Mm -hmm. both at the same time. Okay. So along comes Einstein and takes... Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is actually an, an inequality, it's, it's, it's a little formula with, a, with a, a, is a greater than or equal to sign in it rather than mm. an equal sign, 
And he manipulated it and said, okay, your principle says that I can't know the energy of a, of a, of a system and the particular time at which I measure that energy with complete precision for both. Mm-hmm. So either I know the energy with high precision, but, but the, the uncertainty in time is very high, mm-hmm. or, I, or the, uh, the uncertainty in time is very small, so I, I determine the time at which something occurs very precisely, then I don't know what energy it had. Mm-hmm. And we should be clear, this isn't because of our you know, limitations no, of our measuring right. machines. Yes, it's what, is... the way that wave functions behave. Yeah. yeah. The moment you take a wave function and you force it to have a particular energy, a, a very precise energy, then, then it must be in that state for over a very long period of time. Mm. So I can't isolate a particular time. Mm. Right? And similarly, if I force a particular state to only occur over a very short period of time, then the energy spreads out. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's, it'll have a range of possible energies. The wave function, the energy, you know, the wave function will be like a superposition of multiple energies. Mm. Right. As I say, it's, it's, as you said, it's not the limitation of the measurement apparatus. It's built into the way the wave functions behave. Okay. Yeah. So Einstein then said, so what you're telling me then, if Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is correct, and as I say, the maths is, is correct. It's completely mm-hmm. correct. He's completely understood the formalism. And he said, and, and so much so that he then derived, he's saying then that the uncertainty in energy multiplied by the uncertainty in the time must be more than, more than some minimum mm-hmm. value. So he said that means that if I have a very short periods of time, in other words, time intervals that are very, very, um, very definite, a definite location in time, the energy is uncertain. So that means that for very short periods of time, I can get energy out of nowhere. I can violate the conservation of energy principle for very short periods of time. Mm-hmm. Now, because E equals MC squared, if I can just, for very short periods of time, borrow from nowhere all this energy, <laughs> E equals MC squared, that can become mass, so I can create a particle out of nothing, as long as it disappears <laughs> quickly enough that I don't have time to measure the violation of conservation of energy. <laughs> right. So this is what Einstein said. He said, surely that's nonsense. Yeah. So he correctly did the maths, mm-hmm. correctly predicted what the maths implied, but back the wrong horse. He said, that can't be right. It turns out it's right. These are things called virtual particles. So what happens is that in, in quantum mechanical systems, you can have, for very short periods of time, particles that appear out of nowhere. They're called virtual particles. And these are things we can observe. You can't observe the particle directly. But we know they must be Because you happening. can observe the effect of them. Yeah. Okay? So there's something called quantum electrodynamics, which is, which is the most successful attempt to take... Um, to take um, electromagnetism, which is really come from the classical past, mm-hmm. and stick it together with um, with uh, uh, oh okay and and however, it turns out that electromagnetism is very nicely um, uh, can be very very nicely reconciled with Einstein's relativity. Okay, mm-hmm. the, 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 
Yeah, so, so relativity through, through, um, uh, is, is very happy to live alongside Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism, the way that light waves travel and that sort of stuff. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's relativity. But then you've got quantum mechanics. So two things that Einstein helped kick off, right? Mm-hmm. But they, they, they're not, they don't reconcile with each other, right? The maths of one and the maths of the other are inconsistent. Mm-hmm. However, uh, a, a number of people, including Richard Feynman, the famous bongo player, uh, <laughs> took quantum mechanics and relativity and sticky taped them together to predict the behaviour of electrons. Well, it's called quantum electrodynamics, QED, mm-hmm. right? And you can, you can use um, quantum electrodynamics to calculate with very high precision to, you know, something like 12 decimal places, which is the, you know, unheard of in any other field, mm. uh, predict the, the, the properties of an electron. Uh, electrons, anybody who's doing chemistry might, or, or physics will know that electrons have spin. Mm. I don't know if you remember from your chemistry. Very vaguely, yes. Yeah, and you were, you were, you were sticking electrons into, into atoms and they had a spin up electron and a spin yeah, down electron. Lots of balloons. All those pictures, balloons. Yeah. yeah. So electrons have spin. And if you work out what the ratio of that spin is to the magnetic dipole moment mm-hmm. of the electron, if you, if you work it out classically, you, you, you can't work it out. It doesn't make sense. Uh, but you use quantum electrodynamics and you get the, the correct answer to 12 decimal plate, you know, 12 significant <laughs> figures. So it's very, very accurate. Mm-hmm. Right? The reason why that works is because every particle in the universe is surrounded by these virtual particles, virtual mm. photons that appear out of nowhere and then disappear before you have time to measure that you violated the conservation of energy principle. <laughs> right? And you assume they exist and you include them in the calculation and you get the right answer. Okay. Right? So virtual particles are real. They, well, it uh, depends what we mean by real. Real but, as they can be. <laughs> but, but, you know, well, the virtual particles are, are an actual phenomenon. Yeah. And, and they correctly predict the outcomes of experiments. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they all come out of Einstein's attempt to disprove quantum mechanics. So as I say, <laughs> Einstein understood the maths of quantum mechanics. Mm. He understood, but he just backed the wrong horse. He, he was affronted. His, his philosophical position was mm. affronted by, um, by the reality of quantum mechanics. Mm. And the same thing happened with general relativity as well. Um, at the, he came up with his theory of gravitation, general relativity, mm-hmm. and then three people, one of, one of which was a fellow called Lemaitre, who was a, a Catholic priest, a Belgian Catholic priest. And he showed that uh, at the time, most, almost all physicists believed that the most rational philosophically rational picture of the universe was the universe had existed forever and was stable. Mm-hmm. You know, right? But Lemaitre and, and um, Friedman and uh, oh, the third guy, anyway, three, three, three theoretical <laughs> physicists took Einstein's equations and showed that they implied that the universe was, could not be stable because it was either expanding or contracting mm-hmm. or, you know, both in succession. Okay, in the same way that you throw a ball up in the air, eventually it'll come back down. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so they showed that um, uh, you, you you couldn't create a situation where all the objects in the universe were essentially just 
all the forces on them are all balanced out, mm. right? Or even if you even if you created a universe that was infinite in extent, where all the gravitational forces all balanced out, anything that changed would upset that um, that that careful balance, and it will come collapsing down. Right? Mm. And Einstein was absolutely affronted by this because this implied. Oh, right. So therefore, it's either expanding or contracting, and therefore the universe must have begun with a big bang. From a single point. It must. Well, it must. It must have. Be, his equation said mm. that since the universe can't have been existed forever in in this stable stationary state, it must have started with a bang, mm-hmm. and then possibly it would come crashing back down again in the future. Maybe not. Maybe it's depending on how how big the bang was, mm. um, or, or how much mass there was. But Einstein was affronted by the fact that, he, that, that this fellow had shown that his own equations proved that the universe must have had a beginning. Now, for a Catholic priest, <laughs> no problem at all with that, right? <laughs> but for somebody who didn't believe in a, in a creation, this was a difficult to swallow. And Einstein even came out and said of Lemaitre, he said, your, your maths is correct, but your physics is abominable. I mean, so again, we have a case where physics is coming up against... Philosophy. Yes, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's, it's a, it's a, uh, yes, there's definitely a place for philosophy in physics, but mm. sometimes it's the wrong place. Sometimes it's the wrong philosophy. <laughs> See, Einstein, Einstein's original, uh, originally his, his um, relative, when, he, when he first arrived relativity, he was actually um, starting with a, philosoph- with a philosophical position. Mm. This the, the thing called the principle of relativity, which Galileo first came up with, the first version of, so he had a philosophical position, and, and, and most physicists had a, had a philosophical position that there's nothing special about our location in space or time or whatever, and therefore you have to come up with laws that work everywhere in the universe in the same way, right? Mm. So these are philosophical positions, and they were very fruitful, and they gave us relativity. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, his philosophical positions on cosmology and in quantum mechanics were wrong. And they, and they stopped him from being able to make any more progress in quantum mechanics, even though he and Planck started, started it all off. off. I feel a bit bad. I feel like I've gotten a first-year course in physics for free. <laughs> oh, it's all in the exam. Don't you worry. <laughs> I, I feel like we could keep going. And I had a whole list of questions written. I've gotten to about two of them. But we've been going for over an hour. Oh, have we? And I should probably... <laughs> <laughs> let you get back to it <laughs> but yeah maybe maybe we'll do this again okay and pick and, up where we left off okay and and I, it, will there be opportunities for people to post responses online because maybe that's where we can where, where you can put some of those questions yeah of course this will go up on the institute science website oh, okay, and you can okay. comment on that i'll share it on twitter and on the facebook page okay and everything so yeah if, if people are have burning questions I'll, I'll take oh, and the more, the more burning, the better. <laughs> All right. Well, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, you have a, a website on the UNE That's the university right. website, or they can check out your lame website. <laughs> wow, the lame website is... <laughs> it's is, good for is, funny is, is mo- it's, it's mostly my old lecture notes from another <laughs> university. But, uh... All right. Well, But, the, but you know, look, if you just Google my name, you'll find a couple of little articles that are... I've got out there. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of stuff that you're out there doing, including podcasts. So thanks again, Stephen. All right, I hope to uh, talk to you soon. Yep, 
Sounds great. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to Institute Science on any good podcast app. We're on Facebook, Twitter. There's the website. Thanks again. I'm James O'Hanlon. We'll see you next time. <laughs>